It is the fascinating story of a father's journey to discover his son on the Camino de Santiago. Award-winning actor, producer, director Emilio Estevez is here to tell us why he's just about to re-release his film, The Way, in theaters. President of the Catholic League, Dr. Bill Donahue, turns a sociologist's eye on the war on virtue in a new book. Finally, why are we seeing the end of a more than 200-year-old religious order of Catholic nuns founded by the first U.S.-born American saint? Sister Donna Dodge, president of the Sisters of Charity New York, will share her thoughts on this sad news. The World Over begins right now. Now, Raymond Arroyo. A warm welcome to all of you joining us in the United States and the world over. If you'd like to comment on tonight's show, send me a tweet. I'm at Raymond Arroyo. Lots to get to, but first, some news. Fort Benning, the historic U.S. Army base near Columbus, Georgia, got a new name on Thursday when it was formally rechristened Fort Moore in honor of the late Lieutenant General Hal Moore and his wife, Julia. Fort Benning was one of two Georgia bases picked by a commission charged with renaming military installations whose names had been linked to the Confederacy. You'll recall Hal Moore was a frequent guest and beloved one of this show. He was a hero both of the Korean and Vietnam conflicts and co-authored a best-selling memoir of his experiences. We were soldiers once and young, later turned into that hit film with Mel Gibson. I can't think of a more appropriate honoree. May Lieutenant General Hal Moore and his beloved wife, Julie, rest in peace. And my first guest tonight is an acclaimed actor, producer, director, screenwriter with such credits as The Breakfast Club, St. Elmo's Fire, The Mighty Ducks, and his acclaimed film, Bobby. I sat down with him recently at French Crust Bistro in his adopted hometown of Cincinnati to talk about the one-night-only re-release of his most personal film, The Way, a labor of love about family and faith and community starring his father, Martin Sheen. It hits theaters on Tuesday, May 16th from Fathom Events. Here's my exclusive interview with Emilio Estevez. Emilio, I came across an incredible quote from you. And you said, film is an illusion, fame is ephemeral, faith and family are what endure. How did you come to that formula? Well, growing up in a, in a show business household where my father stressed that family was important. Mm -hmm. the, the work, yes, is important, but at the end of the day, you are left with the people that you love and the people who love you. Um, they're not gonna bury you with all of your movies. Mm -hmm. They're not gonna bury you with your work. Uh, and so, so for me, it was um, the, the, fam the family connection and staying close to not only my parents, but my siblings, and now my children, and now my granddaughter, uh -huh. uh, it's, that has always been yeah. central, and a, central and, a, and, a, and a real important tenet uh, well, in our family. When we last met, and I cannot believe it has been 12 years, thank goodness we haven't aged a day. Exactly, no, is it, we're goodness. rotting inside. That's right, we're yeah, rotting right. inside, but we, we've been in amber, so we're right. well preserved. Exactly. Um, you told me at that time, when we talked about faith, that you thought of yourself as a work in progress. Mm -hmm. Do you still? I think we're all a work in progress. Aren't we that sort of in the center of, uh, of that piece of, of marble? We all reside and we sort of, you know, life sort of chips yeah. away and finds the authentic self. But, but when I watch this day. movie again, and I just watched it again, mm -hmm. this doesn't feel like a wandering film. This feels like it has a particular destination. Do you have a particular destination? Or do you I, feel you do? I feel like I'm on this extraordinary road, this extraordinary journey where there's so many discoveries being made every day in my life. Mm. Um, there are wonderful joys and wonderful disappointments. Mm. And, I, and I embrace the, the disappointments as well because sometimes the, the lessons that you, that, you, that you learn the most from are not necessarily the triumphs of your life. Mm -hmm. you, you, know, you have to look at every situation as a watershed 
for learning, for, for, for getting to whatever that next level is. Yeah. And that, I think, has allowed me to re-embrace this re-release of the movie. Because again, there was a lot of, you remember, we yeah. talked about this early days. Yeah. I, I, you know, we did a 50 day, 35 city tour for the film. We shrink wrapped this poster on the bus. On a bus. And we <laughs> drove across the country and it was Martin and I doing two uh, screenings a night, doing Q and A's afterwards, one secular, one non. And man, it was, uh, I, I had such high hopes. And then the movie kind of disappeared. And I was very disappointed. And of course, you know, you put all that effort into something. Mm -hmm. But then here we are. And, and, and again, it's about, it's about the journey. It's not necessarily always about the destination. I know that sounds cliche, but I, I think this is one instance where it is, it's living proof of well, that. Well, and this movie is kind of the embodiment of this, which I want to get to in a second. Mm. Your mom was a Southern Baptist. Your That's dad, right. of course, a returned Catholic, came back to the faith in 1981. That's right. Um, we always talk about Emilio Estevez, the son of Martin Sheen. Mm -hmm. We rarely talk about or hear about Janet's influence on your life, right. your mom, who was also an artist. Yes. Tell me yes. how her influence shape you. You've been quoted as saying she had more influence She is, over you. In, in many ways, the, the, the real artist of the family. I mean, she's a fine artist. Mm -hmm. She uh, got a, a um, scholarship from the Kiwanis Club in Cleveland mm -hmm. to go to New York uh, to go to the, uh, the new school as, wow. as a fine artist. And she's a painter. And that's where she met my father. Huh. But she has always stressed the importance, not only of family, but of sitting together, breaking bread, sharing ideas. Mm -hmm. uh, every place that we would travel to and you know it was always immersive travel so my father believed that for the family to stay together we actually had to physically stay together so when we traveled to location we all came along whether we wanted to or not on his work location uh, i mean you've exactly. been the philippines mexico, Rome, the mexico. i mean you've right. been on your pilgrimage for a long in. time exactly so it wasn't uncommon for us to sort of dig into a community find a house an apartment and then my mom would set up set up shop and it was always inclusive it was always the, the, the neighborhood kids, uh, the locals. And, and so it was a, it was always a, her mission to make sure that we, ha that we created home wherever we were, but we also created community. Mm. So I think that had a lot to do with, you know, she was born here in Cincinnati mm -hmm. in 1939, uh, and then raised over in Kentucky in a little town called Salyersville. And so for her growing up, you know, her faith was very important to her. Uh, she didn't necessarily continue following the Southern Baptist route, but mm -hmm. the values I think that she that she derived out of that were were I think core a central core mm -hmm. to who she is now. She is she's all about family. Is, is that part of the reason why you're back in Cincinnati? You did, yes. you moved here. Yes. You never grew up here. No, but she no. did. She uh, yeah she and my dad Dayton about uh -huh. you know 45 minutes away from here. So I. Um, in, in fact, on that tour that we were talking yeah. about earlier, on that, uh, our last stop was here in Cincinnati. Huh. And, um, and the film commissioner, uh, she said, hey, how about you stick around for a few days and we'll show you what Cincinnati has to offer. That was in 2011. Mm. And I have been just having a love affair with the city ever since. Mm. It's just, uh, I, I bought a house here in 2017. I've been, uh, pick, uh, you know, been uh, doing all the, the, the rehab on that. Yeah. Uh, but I've just, uh, it, it feels, in, in, a, in a strange way, it feels very familiar to huh. me. Without having lived here before, it's, it just feels very familiar. It's a walking city. Yeah. It's, uh, it's a very, uh, I mean, you, you can find community here. You have dedicated yourself to independent films, despite your incredible success in studio releases, which you, you right. continue to do, do over your career. I want to talk for a second about Bobby which is a film that somehow I had missed along the way, mm. and I just saw. Wow. I mean, Anthony Hopkins, Demi Moore, Sharon Stone. I mean, you've got Harry Belafonte, who we just lost. Harry Belafonte, who yeah. just passed away. Yeah. Incredible, yeah. an incredible cat. What drew you to that story, to tell sort of the atmospherics, mm. the surrounds of Robert Kennedy's assassination, all the people around him, some who didn't know him at all? That's right. So, and again, that's sort of, leans back into the pilgrimage because mm -hmm. we had uh, moved out of New York. We'd gone to Mexico to shoot Catch-22, Mike Nichols' follow-up yeah. to um, The Graduate. The graduate yeah. And so, and Art Garfunkel, who'd done uh, Simon Garfunkel's music, had been in 
The Graduate, obviously, and now Art Garfunkel was one of the co-stars of Catch-22, and you know, I, I, you know, I, I loved all the music of Simon and Garfunkel. So now, we, left, we wrapped up shooting in Mexico, we uh, got on a train, uh, and, and as a family, and with basically all of our worldly possessions, we crossed the border on foot, we rented a car, and drove to California, to, to Los Angeles. And my dad said, the first place I want to see before we get settled anywhere is the Ambassador Hotel. Because Bobby had just been shot and killed there the, the, the year before. Hmm. So, and I remember being six years old and walking through the Ambassador, holding his hand, mm -hmm. going towards the, the Embassy Ballroom, and just having that moment. Cut to 1999. I hadn't been back to the ambassador since then. I was there for a photo shoot with Charlie for a picture we had done for Showtime, and the, the manager of the hotel, uh, because it was no longer a hotel, it was just for, used right. for, for filming purposes, he said, would you like to see the kitchen? Do you, would you like to see where it happened? Mm -hmm. And I said, of course. So we went down, he gave us a tour, and I began to imagine what that day looked like, mm. and started developing the story, and said, okay, what, what was, who was here? How were they affected? Yeah. Because what we lost that night, and we all know, well, we lost an extraordinary opportunity. Yeah. I, I think, I, I think his presidency, and I have no doubt he would have, he would have beaten Nixon. No, my, my pal Andy Williams was there and talks about the, right. you know, held yeah. his head, was, yeah. you know, there at the moment yeah. it happened. And yeah. it haunted him, you know, well into, well into old age. Um, the, the, the other big film that I recently saw, in 2018, there was a big library association meeting in New Orleans. You That's premiered right. it. That's right. It's a movie called The Public. That's right. And this is about a library. Shot here in Cincinnati. Library. I know. Yeah. Again, right here, here are all the threads yeah. coming together. Yeah. I love origin stories, where these stories come from. This is a story of a public library really as a refuge. That's right. Not only an imaginary one, but a physical one, and right. a group of homeless people basically occupy the library during a terrible weather event. They won't leave. That's right. And it, it, it ends up being a, a meditation on the power of public places, the, the importance of libraries, but also our obligation to the poor. That's right. Why, what, what made you do that? And more importantly, what's the connection between the public and the way which preceded it? I mean, I think that it's... It's not hard to see how I would have been influenced by my father's activism mm -hmm. growing up. And, and oftentimes I would watch on TV, I'd see him get arrested. It never really made sense to me. It was always um, nonviolent civil disobedience. And you'd see him reciting the Lord's Prayer as he was getting carted off in handcuffs into a, into a police uh, um, mm -hmm. car. And I thought, what is he doing? Why is he doing this? He looks insane. But over the, over the years, it, it dawned on me that what he was doing was necessary. Mm. It was necessary protest. And he was, it was, he was grounded not only in his faith, but it was also grounded in his, I think, he, who, he, who he really is. My dad has always stood up for the poor. He's always uh, stood up for the marginalized. He's always been there uh, uh, from, from the time he was, a, he was a boy. He's always been that guy yeah. who said, hang on, uh, I, I object, and so it was. That's got to be hard to watch as a son. It was, and it, was. it makes sense of as a young boy. It was, and so for me, as the public began to develop, and it, it started as a, um, it was a, it was a news article mm -hmm. in the LA Times, and it was a, um, a guy named Chip Ward, who was mm -hmm. a uh, librarian who was retiring from Salt Lake City, mm -hmm. uh, the library there, and he said, um, he said, my. On my way out the door, I, America needs to know that, that the libraries in this country have become de facto homeless shelters. And, and he says, I don't have the solution, but we need to start paying attention to why libraries are important. Mm -hmm. And so I was so moved by this piece, and I was looking for a follow-up to Bobby. I thought, as an independent filmmaker, it's one location, mm -hmm. it's a lot of characters, mm -hmm. it feels like the right follow-up, it feels like the right sort of movie to do next, to tackle next. Mm -hmm. um, it didn't get made at the, in, the, in the time frame that, that I had expected it to, and I pivoted to make The Way instead. Mm. And The Way, ah. in, in some ways, it was, I think, for me, a better follow-up to Bobby. It was 
it's a movie that takes place in the exterior after mm. Bobby was such an interior. Yeah. And, and it allowed me to focus on four characters as opposed to 22. And, and it got me sort of, again, trying to, uh, learning how to make a movie with less. Huh. Because we had a small crew, we had a limited time. Natural light. Natural light in all of the elements, however they may come. And so, so for me, um, I learned how to be, I think, more flexible, hmm. um, more dexterous, more sort of like, okay, um, you know, as a filmmaker, I thought it was a really important experience and allowed me to be a better director when we tackled the public. And, and new, no studio would touch the way. When you, no, when you went to them, no, they were just, no, they totally like, missed You it. want to make a movie about four people walking? What is that? <laughs> and I said, well, it's not really walking. It's kind of a metaphor. It's, a, it's kind of like the retelling of The Wizard of Oz. And here are, here are the, the, here are the characters are represented mm -hmm. in that way. And they just, it was, they, their eyes glazed over. And huh. like, okay we're not going to get any traction here. Let's just figure out how to make this and let's go to Spain and find true believers. And we did. Huh. And, uh, and, and it all came together. And, and again, th and, and this is the story. The way is really the story of a father who loses a son. They were somewhat estranged. The, the son had been on the way going down the, the um, Camino de Santiago and he dies. And his father goes really to complete the pilgrimage. That's right. This is rooted in a personal family story, though, for you. It is. It is. Not as dark. Yeah, thank you. No, goodness. no. It's, <laughs> it's, it's a little more, it's, well, it's a lot more joyous. Yeah. My uh, son was uh, working as my father's assistant in 2003 during the West Wing. Mm -hmm. And my dad had organized a trip to go to Ireland and Spain. And he'd always wanted to visit the Camino. Because huh. Santiago de Compostela is about... 50, 60 miles from where my grandfather Francisco was born. So he had heard about the Camino. He'd always, you know, envisioned that you know someday he would he would uh, walk it. But now, uh, in his late 60s, there he is during hiatus hmm. for West Wing, and he says, "Let's just go drive it. Let's just go see what it is." My son went with him, hmm. and they were they were in a town called Burgos as they were traveling along the Camino, and they stopped at what's called a Casa Rural or an albergue, and it's where they take in pilgrims for the night and yeah. they uh, feed them and house them and as on their journey. Yeah, on their way. And a young woman walks into the room and my son takes a look at her and he falls in love secretly. <laughs> he comes back to the United States and says, Dad, I'm going to university. I said, hang on, what's her name? And, <laughs> and he says, in truth, he says, I've met a, a, an extraordinary person, someone who live in Spain. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm out of here. So he goes to Spain. He lives there for nine years. They got married. Oh they got married the gosh. year that we started shooting. They got married in 2009. Wow. And, uh, and, and now you have a granddaughter. And now I have a granddaughter, <laughs> which is another miracle that came out of the Camino. Wow. And our experience with the way. Now, this is, of course, the backdrop of this, and the role you play is that of an estranged son from his father. That's right. That really could not be closer to the reality of you and your father, Martin, who are very close. We are very close. Why yeah. tell that story? Well, I wanted to create, a, obviously, friction between the father yeah. who has this very sort of uh, comfortable, cozy country club life. Mm. Uh, we open the movie and he's out on the golf course and he's playing with his doctor buddies and they're all making silly jokes yeah. to each other. And then he gets this horrible news yeah. and it, that his son has uh, died on the Camino de Santiago. And he says, I don't even know where that is. So what I wanted to set up was this, uh, not only the friction, but the son was sort of this free spirit. Right. He'd been in the world of academia and he sort of broke free from that. He was more leaning into the sort of the Margaret Mead uh, uh. school of, of uh, cultural anthropology. Yeah. So he had to see the world. And his dad really didn't understand that. Uh, and so when we pick up the story, he's been out there in you know, traveling for years and doesn't have a cell phone and he's sort of disconnected and the father is drawn into his world and during the course of the movie he the the journey that he couldn't make to meet his son in the middle during his life he's now forced to make the, the complete journey yeah. to meet him on his terms but it's for tom it's for the father yeah. not for the son mm. I love how you describe it. You say the, the backdrop is this homage to The Wizard of Oz. That's right. But which somehow, even though I saw it all these years ago, right. I never made the connection. Sure. Because I was focused on, you've got these three people who are essentially non-believers wrestling with faith and life That's and right. what this all means and their role in it. Um, but uh, 
pull out that Wizard of Oz string. I mean, Jack, you meet Jack on the road, well, he's literally with hay. That's right, and, and when we were scouting the location, I, I, well, so, so just to go back, yeah. Tom is Dorothy. The uh, tornado is the, the death, death of, of, the, the sun. of the sun. Toto yeah. is the box, the cremated remains, oh. who, that keeps getting away. We meet the, the Tin Man in uh, Sarah, yeah. in her brokenness, in her, all the gadgets that she's got on her. Her heart is broken. We meet the Dutchman. The Dutchman oh, is yeah. the cowardly lion. He's, you know, there's that scene with El Ramon where he says, uh, he says, what are you all, five? He says, no, I'm just scared. <laughs> so it's like, again, I drop these little, and when Jack, so we're scouting locations, yeah. and we're trying to figure out where we find Jack on the Camino, and we're in a van with the rest of the crew, and I saw this hay field out, and I thought, that's where, how do we get there? That's where we meet Jack. Uh. And so everyone's looking at me, and it's like, and at one point, the, um, the uh, production uh, designer named Victor Molero, this very gentle man, he pulls me aside and he says, I don't mean to offend, but are we telling a tale? <laughs> I said, yes. We're telling a tale. We're telling baby. a tale. <laughs> We're telling a tale. And he says, okay, I get it now. Hmm. So, uh, so yeah, so Jack is the, is the scarecrow, suffering from writer's block, therefore looking for his brand. How important are these spiritual journeys. They're essential. Why? They're essential because that is the only way we get to know ourselves. That is the only way. Mm -hmm. We only come to know ourselves through the work that we do to figure out who in the, who we are. Because I think, isn't that the essential question from the beginning of yeah. time? How did I get here? Why am I here? And what is my, what is my purpose? Well, and How it, can and I live a purpose-driven life? Yeah, I and mean, it restores your sense of wonder and all, which this movie, watching it again, you're kind of in awe of the, the, the natural beauty you've yeah. captured here. Yeah. I mean, and the, and of course the finale, which is spectacularly beautiful. In, in, in Santiago, it's just, yeah. and which we didn't have access to. Yeah, tell us about that, about, one of those providential moments. Well, they, um, they, they thought, well, if you are filming in the cathedral, we can't really control how it's gonna be portrayed. And I said, I said listen, we are, um, we're doing a movie about the Camino. We have to end. It ends here. We, you know that. He says, well, the, 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 uh, the, the, the Junta de Galicia, the, mm. the government there, they said, we, um, we, can't, we, we can try to help you, but we can't guarantee that you'll get access. access. My son went, and my aunt Carmen, who lives in Madrid, and my father went ahead of us. Like I think we were two days behind and so shooting on the Camino. Mm -hmm. they, they, they leapfrogged us and went ahead and sat with the bishop and basically told him the story about how they got there. My aunt is a teacher in Madrid. My son married a, a gal from Burgos. And, and by the end of the meeting, he was laughing. And he thought, my gosh, he says, if you want to shoot here, it's yours. He says, but you only have three hours. Uh -oh. So I thought, okay, we've got 10 pages in the cathedral. How in the world are we going to shoot this in three hours? And they said, not a mas. Three hours. I said, okay. And that included the Portugal de Gloria, which is right, the, right. which they had not, uh, they hadn't, it was still under construction and they hadn't opened those doors. So they were, they were sealed. They said, we'll open those for you. But that, that three, three hours, hours includes that. So we had four cameras. We were running around like mad. And then um, they said, well, you're, you still want to do, you, do you still want to be one of the guys that pulls the boat to Fumero? I said, of course. I said, but I don't really know. And, and the mass had already started. And they said, just follow the other guys. And they threw this purple <gasps> robe on me. And I said, well, what do I do? What if the thing, they said, don't worry, just pull down, pull down. I said, okay. And while we're filming and while, so I'm directing. <laughs> while you're. <laughs> I've got four cameras running around. I'm hoping and praying that everybody's getting everything they need. But in the meantime, I march out there with these, you know, other guys in these purple yeah. long robes. And I was like, okay. <laughs> and I look over at my dad and I'm pulling this thing. I'm going, <laughs> <laughs> I hope we're getting this. I hope we're. I hope in the three hours that we have. And sure enough, at the end of that three, pick up your cameras and go. You had it all. You got all ten pages, or you had to cut a few. We we cut a few. Yeah, mm -hmm. we uh, we sort of. And, I, and and there was no time to really work with the actors and say this is what happens. And I said, whatever inspires you. I said, give thanks and praise. I said, whatever inspires you. I'm going to follow you around. Find a seat. Look at a, a relic. Look at the grandeur of where we are. Mm. I said, I'll follow you around with the camera, whatever happens. And so Jack, huh. the Irishman, who is 
you know, he's not, he's not a, he's a non-believer. Mm -hmm. He has that moment where mm -hmm. he's sitting in the pew and he just starts weeping. I mm -hmm. thought, that's exactly it. That's of course. It. There's a the moment. And York, who plays, uh, who, the, Yost the Dutchman. Yeah. When the moment where he falls to his knees, uh, it was, and he fought me on that too. He didn't want to do it. He says, well, why am I the only one who has to call it? This? <laughs> why are the other ones doing it? I said, York, I said, you're the only one who can. Mm. And, and, and again, even when he was doing it, he thought, this is rubbish. And he does it, and it's beautiful. Works and it's beautiful. that moment where it's like, of course, he's the only one who could do it. Mm. And it's such a, it's a profound moment. And it, and, it, and it brings you into his spirit, yeah. I think, in that moment. There's this setup early on in the movie that I love. It's the, and it's really the only scene you have with your dad. Uh, you know, and it's between the deceased son and the father in flashback. Right. And, and the father says, my, Tom, my life here might not seem like much to you, mm. but it's the life I choose. Mm. And the son says, you don't choose a life, Dad. You live one. Right. That's really yes. the heart of the whole movie. That is. That is. And, 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 and the moving toward, journeying and pilgrimaging toward the life you're meant to live. That's right. That's right. And becoming a whole person. Becoming that complete person that is, is all, it's, it's in all of us. It exists inside all of us. We get, I think, uh, we, we have an image of, of, of who we are in the world. Mm. And then we get caught up with, with, you know, with media, with social media, with mm. all of the noise. The noise and the nonsense, I think that, and again, I'm guilty of it too. I'll, I, I go down those rabbit holes and you think, oh my gosh, you know, what am I doing? This is not my, this is not my mission. Yeah. My mission is to keep working and to keep being, trying to improve myself, my life, people around me, as a, not, not only as a human being, but as an artist. Yeah. And so that is the struggle, I think, for, for a lot of us to, remember to get out of our own way. Why bring the way back 12 years later, Emilio? And, and, and to theaters again. Sure. So which is happening the film on May was, 16th. Yeah, the film's coming back May 16th through Fathom Events. Uh, it is a, um, it, it's, it's an interesting story because we, we were sort of resigned to the fact that the movie had disappeared. Um, there was a term limit on when the rights would, were going to return back to me. However, once that, in the middle of all of that, it was, the film was sitting in a motion to abandon rights court in Delaware, which I didn't know about. And it was with, it was alongside 1,100 other titles. So the film was just sitting there in Nowheresville. So I got a call from a guy named Chris Bueno, who runs a boutique distribution company uh, out, of, uh, out of California. And he says, do you know anything about your movie? He says, it's sitting there, I think I can help you Spring it. Spring it loose. So we began to work on this. And this was in late 2020, 2021. And it's taken this long to sort of get it out, repackage it, reboot it. Fathom Events, they like to do what's called added value. Mm -hmm. So they said, well, what could the added value be? You know, maybe we'll go to Spain and we'll shoot some B-roll there. And maybe we'll interview people that have been on the Camino. My girlfriend, Jackie, had this crazy idea. At the time, it was crazy. She says, why don't we just call Rick Steves? Why don't we just call him? And, and he's, he's the most well-known, most loved travel icon in America. If he gets you know, in, involved, he, I'm sure he would love this movie. So I said, well, I don't have his email. I don't have his number. She said, well, I have his generic. <laughs> we write him. The next day, Rick Steves calls. And he says, hey, Emilio, it's Rick Steves. I said, really? And so we had a big laugh. The next day we were on a Zoom. That weekend he was on a Zoom with Martin and I, and we were discussing what that would look like, what that huh. conversation would look like. The next pilgrimage that we took was we loaded uh, up onto the Amtrak in Los Angeles. My mom, my dad, Jackie and I went to Edmonds, Washington, huh. to Rick's hometown, uh, set up cameras in his father's uh, piano, uh, his, former piano sales room yeah. it was called Rick's or uh, was called Steve's Sound of Music mm. where they sold pianos out of and it's now a bar called the Church Key Pub okay. and we set up cameras there and I basically was the moderator and I sat between Rick and Martin and I asked them questions about their life about family about and so we shot this hour-long conversation 20 minutes of which is now attached to the end of the way oh, cool. so it's it's the film yes it's found it, it's found a new life 
and it's more relevant now after COVID, I think, after mm -hmm. the lockdowns and the isolation, people are looking to get out again. But now the film has this added value with Rick mm -hmm. and, and he's sort of given it this endorsement, I think, that mm -hmm. is, is very special. Yeah, but I know from people who've walked away, I haven't, that it transforms them. They all get something yes. on that path. Um, what have you received from this path? Uh, working on this movie mm. all these years and now right. revisiting it, carrying it with you again. I think for me, when, when you get the feedback, whether it's on social or emails or my dad, he will get snail mail, yeah. um, I mean weekly, where people say, your movie changed my life. Mm. Thank you for making this. This film quite literally saved my life. Uh, I don't know if I'm ever going to make another movie that has that sort of relevance and that importance in, in somebody's life mm -hmm. that they actually, they saw the movie, they got up off their couch, they got to their computer, they booked their ticket and they went to Spain and mm. walked 500 miles. I mean, mm. I, I, what other movie does that? Yeah. Um, maybe the sequel. Yeah, maybe, maybe the, sequel. the sequel, which I hear is in the works, and it let's is. end yeah. with this. Yeah. How would you, I mean, you catch up with Tom? We catch up with Tom, it's 10 years later. He's in Nigeria, he is Are now, your lead actors willing to do this? He is, no, he's, okay. yeah, he's, he's Martin he's, signed he's, off. He's done, he's, okay. he's, he's, he's down to do it. Uh, he is now uh, with Doctors Without Borders, Medicine Some Frontiers. He's on a mission oh. in, in a remote village in, in northern Nigeria, and he's performing cataract surgeries. Wow. And so it's a very, again, it's a very personal journey. It travels not only from Africa to Europe, but goes to Dublin and Amsterdam and Brussels and Paris and, and, and arrives back in Spain on the Northern route. Big budget. So it's a much bigger <laughs> movie. It's a much more ambitious movie, but it's still, at its core, is still about people. And it's still a movie that celebrates our humanity hmm. and our brokenness. Because again, that's, those are the movies I make. That's your way. That is my way. The special re-release of The Way, starring Martin Sheen and directed and starring Emilio Estevez, hits theaters for one night only on Tuesday, May 16th, presented by Fathom Events. Check your local listings for participating theaters and showtimes or visit fathomevents.com for all the information. I had some incredible school visits in Nashville last week. I wanted you to see a few of these such great kids. And my final book signing at the Barnes & Noble in Cool Springs uh, was so incredible. Thanks to all of you who came out to join me. It was a wonderful way to wrap up the tour. The Unexpected Light of Thomas Alva Edison is available now in bookstores everywhere and online. And for you moms out there or dads who'd like a fun gift for mom, don't forget uh, it reveals how a mother's love and devotion turned her son into the greatest inventor of all time. You can still order signed editions at my link on the website from Premier Collectibles. All the details are at RaymondArroyo.com. And, of course, the book is available from the EWTN catalog or wherever books are sold. The Sisters of Charity of New York have announced that they will no longer work toward finding or taking in new members. But why? And what will become of the various ministries they've founded and supported in their over 200-year history since their founding by the first U.S.-born saint, Elizabeth Ann Seton? Joining me to discuss this and more is the president of the Sisters of Charity New York, Sister Donna Dodge. Thank you so much for being here, Sister. Um, the New York Congregation of the Sisters of Charity was founded back in 1846. You currently have a community of 154 nuns. On April 27th, the Sisters of Charity announced in a press release the following. No longer will we work toward finding nor accepting new members to our congregation in the United States. And asks the assembly to affirm that we continue to live our mission to the fullest while acknowledging that we are on a path to completion. End quote. That, that, sister, this sounds like a path to extinction. W why did you all come to this decision? Uh, a number of reasons, uh, Raymond. We haven't had any new members in the United States for the last, uh, for over about 21 years. Um, if somebody were to enter now, they would need somebody to accompany them for at least six or seven years in the formation process. With our median age of 85, we have nobody to do that. Uh, in addition, 
if somebody were to come and join us, you want to give them an experience of a vibrant living community. And more than half of our sisters are in retirement homes. So for those reasons, we mm. thought it was unjust to accept new members. However, however, I have to add that we belong to a, a wider federation of about 13 congregations across the United States. So if somebody were to come to us, we would certainly encourage them in their vocation and direct them to one of the other uh, congregations. Because I think religious life still has a future. It might be different, but still has a future. Mm. Sister, is, this is the founding congregation, though, isn't it? Isn't this the first one founded? Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. I, I want to play something one of your fellow sisters, Sister Margaret O'Brien, said right. in a recent okay. interview about this decision and the changes to the Sisters of Charity since the Second Vatican Council. Listen. I'm sure there were many times when we questioned all those changes that we made back in the 70s, the habit, leaving schools, going into other various ministries, um, and was there something wrong in that? But when you stop and think, you recognize that each person who did any of those things was doing it in faith, trying, you know, trying to, uh, to read the signs of the time, and, and do what they're called to do. Now, Sister, mm -hmm. you entered the Sisters of Charity New York in 1966, uh, right. which was a time of great changes following, uh, you know, the, the Vatican Council. Um, did, did you all have any reticence about not wearing the traditional habit or, or, um, or leaving the, the schools and the, and the hospitals? I don't think it's a reticence. I, I was one of the last groups that entered who wore the traditional cap and then went to a veil. And in order, the, the main reason that we, we dropped that was we wanted to be closer to the people at that time. I know a lot of people had mm. trouble with that, but we, we did it in good faith. We did it in prayer. When Mother Seton first came um, to New York, uh, well, she didn't, not that she was in New York, but when she sent the sisters or um, it was to be among the people in the garb of the day. And that, for her, was wi widow's garb. And that's why they wore the cap. So it wasn't, it wasn't radical at that point. It was different, but we felt that we could get closer to the people. And I have to say, just personally, um, I think that has worked over the years. Hmm. Um, Sister O'Brien mentioned the disappointment that the sisters felt at not being able to be ordained priests. Um, was that mindset part of the undoing of the order, that the, the no. idea that there were radical changes coming and we had to embrace them early? No, I don't think women's ordination had anything to do with, with that. If you see changes in the church, you see a decrease in the number of priests, you just want the people to be served. And I think some sisters felt that they had the call to serve uh, people in that way. But that's that wasn't, by and large, a big deal for us. We never, fo we never um, mm. focused on it in any great way. Sister, when I look at, um, you know, groups like uh, the Sisters of Life, which are, who are in New York, or the Nashville mm -hmm. Dominicans, I was just in Nashville, their numbers are growing. They've got 18, 19, 20 uh, new vocations every year. They continue mm -hmm. to grow. Now, it, you know, part of that they attribute to the sort of countercultural witness of the habit and standing apart mm -hmm. from the world. Might that have been a mistake to abandon the habit and the and the difference, if you will, in the middle of the culture and among the people? I, I think there are different ways of living religious life. I wish them well. I, I know some of them. I don't know that I know they get a lot of vocations early on. I don't know that I don't know their percentage of those who stay. Um, that's something you know to be looked at. But there are different ways of of serving God and and living the gospel, and that's one way. And they chose that. And mm -hmm. as I said, I, I wish them well, and I hope they continue. Is there any, um, I mean, I, I have to tell you, I was heartbroken when I saw this story because I covered, when I first came to EWTN, we actually came and did a story on some of your hospitals, the housing you provide mm -hmm. to the poor. Uh, you know, I'm going back more than uh, almost 30 years. Um, mm -hmm. So it was, you know, as, as, a, as a 
kid who went to school in New York, I know your witness in this community, and it is a heartbreaking thing to think that this community is basically going to fold up and go away. Uh, is there any self-reflection of what might have gone awry here and how you would advise other congregations, other sisters, to perhaps course correct so they don't follow this fate? I wouldn't have any advice for course correcting. Um, a, a number of congregations across the United States are in the same uh, boat. We called the question. Um, uh, it, it's we're not, we're not folding. We're, we're handing on the the torch of charity. We're handing on our charism to our lay colleagues, and they are doing a magnificent job in keeping the, the spirit and the service in all our uh, sponsored works alive. We don't have any sisters in our sponsored works, or what were our sponsored works, but we certainly have uh, a great number, as I said, of, of men and women who embrace, embrace mm -hmm. what we have. So it's just a different way. I mean, it's the same if you look at what's happening in, um, in education in the New York diocese, the number of schools that are closing. Um, it's, it's a different time, and people have to respond in a different way. And you have to believe God is in it, in all of it. And we've always been that. God has been mm. with us for the last 200-plus years, and God's not going to abandon us now. So there might be something out there, there that we don't know about, so, but that's what we believe. Yeah, as you mentioned, there, there's been a huge decrease in women entering consecrated life in the past 50 years. Uh, as of 2018, the USCCB reports 45,000 sisters in consecrated life compared to 150,000 in the U.S. in 1965. As somebody who's been a religious sister during that whole period, why do you think we've seen such a decline over these last 50 years? Well, in the United States, women have more opportunities to serve the poor, and um, they have more ways than, than our parents had or our grandparents had. And so a lot of them haven't chosen that path, but lived the gospel in a different way. Those statistics are, are right, correct, for the United States, but in other, I have gone to USSG meetings, and um, the, the vocations are increasing in some of the countries in Asia and in Africa mm -hmm. and in other parts of the world. So God's just doing something very different. We don't understand it, but we have to trust that whatever God's doing is mm. going to turn out well. <laughs> yeah. Sister Donna, throughout your over 200-year history, the Sisters of Charity have uh, opened and staffed 185 schools, 28 hospitals, 23 child care institutions. You currently mm -hmm. sponsor the College of Mount St. Vincent. Uh, and you support the Sisters of Charity Housing Development and uh, mm -hmm. Corporation. That provides affordable housing to senior citizens and homeless and women and children, adults with disabilities. The median age, as you mentioned earlier, is 85 of your sisters. What are the plans for the future of all of these ministries that you currently support and serve? I mean, who will take those over? Well, as I said, we are not leading any of those. We have great men and women of the laity who have um, we work with and um, who have who have the charism of charity and are, they are continuing great works and they're responding to the ever-changing needs. You look at the New York Foundling or Elizabeth Seton um, Children's or as you said, housing or St. Joseph's Medical Center. They're not stagnant and, and they're not stagnant because the leaders whom we have worked with have grasp the mission. Well, sister, I thank you for being here for your ministry. I wish you and your sister certainly the best, but it is a heartbreaking story to see a great order um, in the New York area, the capital of the world, to leave us. Um, so God bless I you. Have, can, I just add, can I just add, Ray, that it, it's sure. almost a freeing, it's a freeing experience that we can now concentrate on continuing to live the gospel message and to work for those on the margins. So it's, it's not sad. Mm -hmm. It's hope-filled, and it's hope-filled because we know that God's with us, so... We're good. Well, you could well, still I'm, continue. I, well, I'm sad about it, sister. Okay. Uh, that that presence to have to have religious among us. Look, I've had I've had very close relations and 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 uh, friendships with religious, particularly in New York. Father Benedict Rochelle and his order, the Sisters sure. of Life, mm -hmm. uh, uh, mm -hmm. Father Father Richard Newhouse. These people were mm -hmm. were so formative for me as a young person and into adulthood. Uh, I, mm -hmm. I I I lament. 
the loss of that religious witness and that community, because social work can be done by anybody, but praying and living in community and then the overflowing of that to serve God is a different charism mm -hmm. and a different movement. And that, that I mourn and that I'm sad about. So but you can continue that you, religious sister. witness with others. You yourself can mm -hmm. do that. And that's what we hope happens. Yeah, but I have a lay calling. I'm a father and I have a lay calling. You, you're a sister. You have a religious following, uh, uh, calling. That's a different call, sister. It's not the same. I can't it's do what you do. Yes, you can't do what I do. Mother yeah. Teresa told me. Right. Yeah. Right. But God bless you. Thank mm -hmm. you for being here. Okay. Thank you very much, Raymond. Thank you. Thank you. My next guest is the president of the Catholic League, as well as a sociologist, and he has a brand new book analyzing some of the disturbing trends in our society today. It's called War on Virtue, How the Ruling Class is Killing the American Dream. We wanted to dive into it. Please welcome Dr. Bill Donahue back to the program. Bill, thank you for being here. Uh, in in the book, me. War on Virtue, you're welcome. You, you contend that a progressive ideology has taken over Americans, uh, or taken over, rather, by America's elites in almost every institution. And they are attacking the virtues that made this nation a world leader. Who are these elites? And why do you think they would target the bedrock of the country? Well, the elites are the, uh, the ruling class are basically the elites who run our institutions, that are major institutions. And it used to be uh, in the past that you would see this left or woke politics uh, was prevalent in the media, the entertainment industry, education, uh, amongst legal activist groups, the arts and, and other organizations. However, the military would never get involved. The healthcare industry elites would never get involved. And the corporate 500 would never get involved. That's all changed. The ruling class now has been penetrated by a left-wing ideology. It's, it's also part of the hate America first crowd as well. Now, I'm not saying that the average person who's in the Army or Navy, Marine Corps, uh, the Air Force, that they're, they're a problem. They're not. I'm saying the Joint Chiefs of Staff are a problem. I'm saying that the people who run the healthcare industry are a problem, as well as all the other institutions that I've, that I've mentioned. The corporate 500, they are now pushing the Equality Act which, if it were to, to be passed, and Biden said he would sign it, would basically shut down Catholic doctors and Catholic hospitals because it would force them to perform abortions and sex reassignment surgeries. This would never have happened 20 years ago. Our country has changed and not for the better. Hmm. Uh, I, I want to get to something you call the vital virtues. Now, these are keys for people to reach their full potential. I want to start with self-discipline. You quote President Calvin Coolidge, who said, quote, the worst evil that could be inflicted upon the youth of the land would be to leave them without restraint and completely at the mercy of their own uncontrolled inclinations. Under such conditions, education would be impossible and all orderly development intellectually or morally would be hopeless. Bill, we hear about students disrupting classes, uh, uh, speeches at the university level, assaults in restaurants. We see this walking through New York City, people getting on the subway and threatening passengers. How do you teach self-discipline to a generation uh, that perhaps has never seen it? Well, it has to begin in the home, and then it has to be buttressed by the, by the, uh, by the parents, uh, I mean, the, the teachers and the clergy. Uh, and quite frankly, one index of self-discipline is, is homework. Who does the most homework in America? Mm. Asian-American kids. Why are they so successful? Because for one reason, they come from intact families. Why do, for example, a lot of Chinese parents ask their kid to, to uh, play the violin, take violin lessons? They're not interested in Juilliard School of Music. That misses the point. If you play the violin, you're going to practice self-discipline. If you learn the ethic of self-discipline, the virtue of self-discipline, that'll carry over into the, into the workplace and to do your homework and the like. If you don't have self-discipline, that's the first of the vital virtues. You're not likely to see it. I don't care whether you're, you could be a dentist, you could be an athlete, you, you could be a space cadet, whatever you might be. You have to have self-discipline. Otherwise, you're, you are a victim to your passions. And everybody who succeeded, yeah. in, 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 and I gave a number of examples of, of athletes, You've got to practice self-control or what's also called impulse control. Uh, in the book, Bill, you draw a fascinating correlation between self-discipline and loneliness. And you point out that one of the reasons young people find it difficult to practice self-discipline is their reliance on social media and how that can lead to loneliness. And you quote a survey of American life by researchers at uh, AEI that found 34 percent of 18 to 29-year-olds, quote, 
rarely or never feel part of a group of friends. Now, last week, the U.S. Surgeon General, Dr. Vivek Murthy, released a report on how detrimental loneliness is to people's health, Bill, uh, calling loneliness an epidemic. He had this to say during an interview with NBC. In-person matters. You know, uh, connecting online has its place, has its value, but it's not a substitute for in-person connection. We really do need both. Bill, how do you reverse this trend, this epidemic, as, as he calls it? Well, for one thing, parents have to work with their teenagers, especially teenage girls who are the most vulnerable, and they have to get them to stop relying on their phone as a, as a form of interaction. There is absolutely no substitute to, for face-to-face -face interaction between people. And in many cases, it, it may be necessary to literally take your, the phone away from the kid. Let them have their friends come on over, play in the basement, go to the movies, things of that nature. If they're sitting at home in their bedroom and they're, quote, interacting with their social media, that means they're not having a true human experience. That would be the first thing that you, mm -hmm. you have to do. Uh, and, and maybe you might even nudge them toward God, because the people who are the least lonely yeah. uh, are the ones who have no religion. They're secular. Uh, uh, they're secularists in the first place. Yeah, the practice of religion, as you point out in the book, that also has, it can be an antidote to the loneliness so many of these young people are experiencing. Yes, and, and, and quite frankly, I don't think enough parents are doing a good job on that thing. But, you know, in terms of the vital virtues, yeah, if you, ha if you practice self-perseverance uh, as well as personal responsibility, yeah. maybe it wouldn't be so difficult to break away from social media. But people give up. You know, psychologists call it grit. We call it perseverance. It is one of the three vital virtues, uh, self-discipline and, and perseverance and, 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 and accepting personal responsibility for your behavior. If you do that, yeah. you're, you're well on your way to success. And, Bill, in the book, you claim that the groups that, in the U.S., anyway, that most embody those vital virtues are Jews, Asians, Nigerians, and Mormons. How do those groups embody the vital virtues, and why, do you think? Well, for one thing, all four of those groups have an intact family. That is to say, almost in every case, there's always exceptions, of course. In mm -hmm. most cases, they come from a family where there's a father and a mother. I didn't say two fathers. I didn't say two parents. I said a father mm -hmm. and a mother. And, and the people who come from the families where there's one parent family, which would be more typical of African-Americans, are the ones at the bottom. It has nothing to do with race, all right? If you take a look at middle-class blacks and, and their kids, they do well in our, in their, in our society. They do well in school. They're not a problem in, in, involved with the law. Uh, but when you have a situation with one-parent families, you tend to have greater problems, and particularly with boys. The boys are, are more aggressive. They have, they have higher levels of testosterone. And unless there's a father figure there to discipline them, they're likely to create mm. problems. Yeah, Bill, I, you grew up without a father. How difficult is that? And what does, how do you counteract that? I mean, there are a lot of kids now growing up, uh, half of American kids are growing up without a father. And that's an important contributor and a marker of success and uh, realizing your full potential. Well, that's true. And I, and, and, as, and typical with a lot of kids uh, who came from a fatherless home, I was always in trouble. I mean, my mother was a nurse and she worked nights. I didn't see her most of the time. My grandparents came from Ireland. Uh, over to the Bronx, and then they, Long Island, they, they raised me. But I was always in trouble. I wasn't a mean kid, but I was always mischievous. I was in, constant in trouble in, in, in elementary school. My mother had to go down there every Friday to meet with the nun, the principals. Uh, I almost got thrown out of high school, suspended. Uh, she sent me to a military boarding school trying to discipline me. That didn't work. I went to college. I didn't go to school. I went to the bar across the street. I never went there. They threw me out of the school, and I wound up in the Air Force. And that's when in the Air Force during the late 60s in the, in the Vietnam War period, I finally began to grow up. And, uh, yeah, you, you guys need fathers. I mean, girls need them, too. But guys need fathers to discipline them. If they don't, they're, they're, they're subject to their own uh, appetites. Mm. You write this about the ruling class that are undermining the virtues that you just laid out. You write, sadly and ironically, it is those who are living the American dream to its fullest who are killing others' prospects of succeeding, especially the most vulnerable among us. The fact is, large segments of the ruling class no longer champion self-discipline, personal responsibility, and perseverance for those trying to climb the economic ladder. Indeed, some seek to destroy these virtues. Similarly, patriotism is under attack, and the ones leading the charge often occupy elite positions of power. Bill, why is it that the people who have succeeded the ones who are considered often the most progressive 
are sabotaging the working class and those trying to catch up? Well, for one thing, there's a tremendous amount of white guilt. And no, nobody, no segment of population uh, suffers more than African-Americans. Uh, I am, I, the, the, the subtext of my book really is that the ultimate racist in our society today, they're not some white supremacist, crazy right-wing people. There might be a few of them out there. I'm talking about the, the, the elites, the ruling class, the left elites in our society. They have basically given up on black people. They're basically saying that you can't make it like mm -hmm. the Asians and the Jews, the Mormons, the Nigerians and others. Uh, and that's because you, you don't have what it takes. You don't have the vital virtues. And this, this condescending, patronizing, white, liberal, racist attitude of not treating black people as equals, this began, quite frankly, in the 1850s. As I point out, a guy by the name of George Fitzhugh, most Americans never heard of him. George yeah, Fitzhugh was America's... Yeah. Yeah. He, he was America's first sociologist. He, he, he regarded himself as the friend of blacks. He was a progressive. He was a left-winger. He said that black people are oppressed and I'm on your side. He was also a proponent of slavery. Now, how can you be pro-black and pro-slavery? It's not hard to do. This is the mentality of the left. Fast forward to 1988, Charles Murray, in his wonderful piece about the coming of the custodial democracy, the white liberal ruling class are now the custodians taking care of black people. They're like the Indians that we take care of as wards of the state on the reservation. Now we're taking care of them in the urban ghetto. What it all comes down to is this. When I worked in Spanish Harlem, I treated blacks as equals. When I worked as a college professor and as the faculty advisors in a basketball team, I treated blacks as equals. I demanded that they succeed. I kept the bar where it was and I helped them to clear it because I wasn't condescending and patronizing. The white liberal ruling class today in education, it's in the military. It's, it's all over in our society. What we're going to do is write you a check, give you reparations. We're going to lower the bar. We're going to punish the Asians because they're too successful. And, and basically what they're saying is you're not equal to us. And so we will force equality onto our society. That is the ultimate expression of racism. I also want you to talk about secularism today, which operates very much like an organized religion. There are rules, there are taboos, punishments for those who don't adhere to the dogma or the ideology. How do people of faith, especially Catholics, uh, resist this lure of secularism that seems to have taken over not only our institutions, but all of society? Well, you either have a sense of community and civility as expressed in our Judeo-Christian heritage, and you have the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, as the guidepost as, as what is right and what is wrong, and you know that there's certain absolutes in society, or you have something else which the secularists are promoting, which is basically radical individualism, where everybody makes up his own idea of right and wrong, everybody has their own moral compass, and that's what leads to this postmodern idea uh, that there's no such thing as truth, that truth is a fiction. And if you believe that, then yes, a man can become a woman, a woman can become a man, a man can become pregnant, a man can give birth. Now, normal people know that that is madness. Unfortunately, only 43% of our society now uh, is, is it, actually 43% of our society now is thinking maybe you can self-identify. This is sickness. And the people who are pushing this idea are members of the elite. It's not the sons and daughters of the firemen and the cops, all right? It's not, it's not Asians. It's not blacks. It's not Muslims. It's not Mormons. It's the well-educated, I say well-schooled, because they stayed in school for too long, white people who have this idea that there's no such thing as God, there's no such thing as human nature. We can make up um, the idea of right and wrong anytime we want. So uh, that's what leads to it. Militant secularism denies moral absolutes. They think truth is a fiction. I keep reminding them that while this came out of Germany in the 1940s, uh, there was a guy in the 1930s who actually said explicitly that there's no such thing as truth. His name was Hitler. Mm. What do you hope people get from reading War on Virtue, Bill? Why did you write it? Well, they, well, they have to understand that without the vital virtues, of self-discipline and personal responsibility and perseverance, you're not likely to succeed. And if you're listening to the elites in our society who are working against it, don't trust these people with the alphabet after their name. Trust your gut. You've got to inculcate the, the, the vital virtues into your own 
uh, children. You've got to man maintain that it doesn't that they're doing it in the schools. You've got to take control of the school boards, as a lot of mothers are doing it, because the, the ruling class in our society has become the enemy of the traditional moral values that is the strength of this country. And we're in a culture war. Either they win or we win. And uh, I know that's why I keep telling people there's only two choices in society left. You either quit or you fight. We're going to continue to fight at the Catholic League. And as I like to say, we're going to take them to the mat. The book is War on Virtue, How the Ruling Class is Killing the American Dream by Bill Donahue. It's available now at bookstores everywhere and online, including EWTN's catalog at EWTNRC.com. Bill Donahue, thank you for being here.